The Fanboy, episode 99. Hi everybody, Mario. Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 99 of the Fanboy Podcast. How is everybody doing out there? Wow, it has certainly been a while. It has been a while. I've missed you, but honestly, I just needed some time. I needed the time. I needed the space, and uh, we'll talk more about that later on in the episode. For now, I'm pretty fired up about some stuff, so let's just get right on into the show, all right? This situation between Sony and Marvel Studios and Disney, as it may, is just, you know, what an unprecedented little cluster this whole thing is. I mean, could anyone have foreseen how this was going to go? I mean, you know, uh, I, I guess... In my darkest thoughts, I thought there was always a possibility that could happen. I've even spoken about it on this very show, where I'm like, wow, this deal is so sort of flimsy and so sort of vague in its terms that really one side could decide to just kind of pack up and go. I've brought up that option before, and honestly, you know, here we are. But you know, I always try to think... Oh, Mario, you're just being very pessimistic. And other colleagues of mine and other friends would say, there's no way Sony and Disney would let that happen. There's too much money on the table. It makes too much sense to just keep things going the way they're going. Oh, look, Spider-Man from home made a billion dollars. You know, everything is right as rain. But look what happened. You know, look what happened. Now it looks like Sony... And Marvel Studios will not be collaborating, collaborating on other Spider-Man movies for the uh, in the at least very near future. Possibly, you know, never again. You never know how this is going to go. And the latest on that <clears throat> finds uh, a representative from Sony. This Sony Pictures chairman and CEO Tony Vincicera said that uh, basically, for the moment, the door is closed. The idea that Spider-Man will come back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that Sony and Marvel Studios will figure out some sort of accord, well, for the moment, the door is closed. And then he does sort of stress in his chat with Variety that there's no ill will between the two studios and they've worked together, you know, very nicely. However, you know, it's been uh, an interesting couple of weeks and that's pretty notable, right? It's been an interesting... It looks like something very major developed very quickly because it was just early July where we're all, you know, Spider-Man Far From Home is doing amazing box office numbers. The reviews are very favorable. People are very high on it. I wasn't particularly, but we'll get to that in a second. Um... You know, it was basically, it felt like a victory lap. Like, wow, this Spider-Man franchise is really just, this is the real deal. You know, Homecoming set the table. Far From Home took it to another level as far as the market is concerned. And, you know, we're really off to the races here. You know, and and we were still living in a world in mid-July, even in mid-August, where, 
you know, it was still like a this ludicrous idea that Tom Holland's Spider-Man could show up in a Tom Hardy Venom movie or in a Jared Leto Morbius movie because no, Tom Holland's Spider-Man belongs to the MCU. That was how we all felt just a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, here we are. As, as, as Mr. Vincicara calls it, that's been an interesting couple of weeks. Because now, in just a matter of a couple of weeks, now he's no longer an Avenger, he's no longer in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's probably incredibly likely now that he's going to show up in Venom and in Morbius, and maybe this was Sony's plan all along. I mean, I don't want to start you know, uh, concocting conspiracy theories, but if you think about it, these last two years, fans have all been scratching their heads about why would Sony green light all of these Spidey spinoffs when they kind of don't really fully have Spidey anymore. You know, Tom Holland, you know, Spider-Man is very much an Avenger thing now, and they're, they're not going to be crossbreeding with with uh, Morbius or, or that Silver and Black movie they were talking about with Silver Sable and Black Cat. You know, that there was, that, that it was very clear that there was a, a, a very defined line of demarcation between the Sony Universal Marvel characters and the Marvel Studios Marvel Cinematic Universe. So maybe Sony always kind of thought, okay, after the next sequel, after he after Spider-Man gets the big rub that he's going to get from Avengers Infinity War, from Avengers Endgame and then leading up to Far From Home, after that, we take him back, and we're going to then cross him over into all of these other projects that we've been lining up talent for. I mean, honestly, it seems like that must be what they were thinking, because otherwise, you know, why make a Spider-Man universe if you're not planning on having Spider-Man? Of course, you could say, I mean, maybe they had an alternate plan where they would make their live-action Spider-Man, the Miles Morales Spider-Man, or something like that. Or maybe they were using Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse as some sort of backdoor into getting the multiverse into Sony's Marvel Universe so that they could explain perhaps another Peter Parker or something like that. You know, like, it, maybe there was, like, a Plan A, Plan B situation where they either futz with the rules and give us a, another Peter Parker or something like that. Or they knew all along that we're basically going to use Marvel Studios to give Tom Holland's Spider-Man a huge rub. We're going to make sure these scripts all include lines about, well, you're an Avenger now. You're an Avenger. Oh, you're the new Iron Man. You're this. We're going to basically make it very, very... We're going to attach him at the hip to the most successful film franchise in the world right now. And then we're going to take him away and use all of that glow and all of that, you know, world building that they've already done to now make him, you know, it, it plug him into our plans. And it makes our plans seem instantly much more better and coherent. And you know what? Here comes the heel turn. I'm kind of down with it. I really kind of am down with it. Um... I did not particularly enjoy Spider-Man Far From Home. And I know that that's, <clears throat> that that's a, um, I guess that's a hot take or something, you know, because everyone I know loved it. 
Everyone I've spoken to thought it was great. My friend Greg, who is a huge Spider-Man fanatic, was like, that's the greatest Spider-Man movie I've ever seen. That's the, that's, you know, the, that third act. That's everything I've always wanted to see in a Spider-Man movie. Like, I, like the hype, the buzz is real. And in this particular case, I just, I don't know. I felt like this was a flimsy flimsy sequel and mind you i don't think homecoming was you know exactly the dark knight or anything but i really liked homecoming i liked you know the kind of the way it balanced you know humor with heart and with some genuine emotion there at the end with that famous you know come on spider-man moment that he has to come yeah there's like homecoming has a special place in my heart even if i don't think it's an instant classic but this was one of those situations where it felt like, you know what it felt like? It felt like when I sat in the theater for The Dark Knight Rises, where it's like, okay, I really enjoyed the last entry, and I'm bringing a lot of internal excitement to this film. And in this particular case, by the way, the previous entry is not Homecoming. The previous entry is Endgame. You know, I'm still kind of like, Endgame was only a few months ago. So to me, that feels like the most recent film that leads into Far From Home. So to, you know, so maybe that gave me unrealistic expectations. Maybe I shouldn't be trying to compare a solo sequel to something as massive and incredible as Avengers Endgame. But you know, whatever the case, since this clearly piggybacks on the storyline in Endgame, and obviously the you know, the, the, the finale of Endgame where Tony Stark, you know, departs us, that's, you know, that provides the framework for this entire film. So it's really hard to not watch this film with, you know, under the shadow of Avengers Endgame. So, you know, I don't know, sue me. So I'm coming in with Endgame feels in my heart, trying to see, okay, how are we going to, you know, where, where are we going to go with this story? Well, how is how does Peter Parker possibly, you know, bounce back from losing Tony Stark? And, you know, are we going to finally maybe, you know, get into some of the deeper psychology of of being a kid and being thrust into that kind of responsibility? You know, I was very excited to see what happened because, you know, I knew that it looked like from the trailers he was going to rebel a little bit from wanting to be Spider-Man. And I thought, oh, that, that's a very neat idea. I mean, it, it's been explored before, but not through the guise of a 16 or 17-year-old kid where it's like he just wants to be a normal boy. You know, he just, you know, he's got a crush on MJ. He wants to like, you know, he, he just wants to be a kid. He doesn't want to necessarily save the world. And after the trauma of losing Tony Stark, you know, there's a lot of interesting layers and levels there to explore with a, with a teenage boy who has this great responsibility, who just wants to be a kid, now feels all this pressure to be something bigger than he wants to be. And, you know, I, like to me, the table was set for a really f interesting sequel. And I was really, really excited to see how it was going to play out. And honestly, it just felt like a lot of the characters were poorly written. A lot of the, you know, people were making silly decisions. Like, I, I you know, Peter Parker, P 
Peter Parker has just dealt with Avengers Endgame, right? He's just dealt with the invasion of Thanos. He's just dealt with basically the world ending and, you know, everything, you know, just a huge life-altering, world-changing situation has just happened. And he knows that he's working with some of the greatest minds in all of this stuff. He understands Nick Fury and Maria Hill and all these people. You know, these are, these are the people who basically keep the world safe. And yes, you know, we find out later on that this wasn't really Nick and Maria, but they were, act, like, they were acting so sort of dumb. Yeah, the, the, the entire premise of their Mysterio thing and then the entire mission they had for Peter made very little sense why they would just believe this whole thing hook, line, and sinker. You know, Mysterio, it just, like, after 11 years of, of making us think that Nick Fury is one of the smartest guys in town, uh, you're now in this movie, I'm watching him make weird assumptions and, 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 ask things of Peter Parker that I think are totally kind of like, this is, this is very out of character. And honestly, without the little 30 second, you know, post credit sequence at the end, you know, I wouldn't even know that that wasn't him. So f within the story of the film itself, Nick Fury and Maria Hill in, the, in that first act, the stuff they're asking of Peter and the stuff that Peter's just accepting hook, line and sinker, I just felt like, wow, I, I, I don't know. I, everyone just suddenly got much dumber. That's, uh, that's a shame. You know, every, all these characters are just kind of silly now. All right. And then, you know, the, there were just things where for me the stakes, you know, I know that coming off of Endgame where the stakes were sky high, you know, it's unfair to expect that level of, of seriousness or depth to be brought to anything, you know, in, 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 or to everything. Especially, you know, a Spider-Man movie, which, you know, they're trying to make these a little lighter. But I was never worried about anyone or anything. There was a lot, like, it just felt like a lot of silliness. A lot of, a lot of things were played for laughs. Peter Parker seemed like a bit of a buffoon on that bus when he ordered the drone strike. And then, like, I, it just, it, they kind of dumbed Peter down. After, after giving him three or four movies to seem like an above average, a, a very, very bright kid, they made him seem kind of a, like a nitwit in this movie for the sake of laughs. And for me, though, it's not even the making him dumb. It also, like, what turned me off to Peter in this script First of all, Tom Holland acted him wonderfully. So Tom Holland did the best he could. But my issues are with the script itself. Um, in the scene where he's with Mysterio in a bar after they've you know concluded the mission, and you know it's it looks like the, the, you know, that they 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 averted you know the crisis. They're sitting there, and first of all, they're in their full costumes. After Peter earlier in the film was stressing about, I don't want anyone to connect anyone, any dots and recognize me here in this country. How would they explain Spider-Man being here? And you know, he, he, he had gone through a whole thing trying to protect his classmates and to make sure his loved ones aren't in danger. And now here he is apparently a couple blocks from where, you know, explosions were happening, having a drink with Mysterio. And yes, he's not in the Spider-Man costume, but... I mean, come on! That the, the 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 night monkey was shooting webs and acting like Spider Man. Like it, he was totally like 
are you trying to be incognito or not? And he's sitting there, and th- and I haven't even mentioned the line, the, the thing that killed me about that scene. It's not even that they're there in their costumes, very casually speaking, around their other civilians sitting around eating and drinking at a time when Peter is trying to keep a low profile. No, it's not even that. It's he just kind of off the cuff, casually says, well, you just save the world. And it's like, hang on a second, Peter. You just experienced everything that's gone on from Civil War to Homecoming to Avengers Infinity War to Avengers End. You've lived through this unbelievable saga of situations. And you know what's at stake, and you know that the Avengers are around, and you know what it usually looks like when the world is at stake. And you think that this Mysterio guy that you met two days ago just saved the world, and he did it by himself, and you don't find it suspicious that no one else showed up to try and help? Or you just... To me, it just felt like it's... How can you be so cavalier and nonchalant about saving the world. Oh, you, well, you just saved the world. It's like, no, how you, after what Peter's gone through, I don't believe for a second that he would buy that Mysterio just save the world in one three-minute fight with a big fiery monster. I just, you know, to me, they dumbed Peter down, and that was a real shame. And, you know, the Mysterio third act, yes, it was cool, It was cool, but I guess by then, I was already sort of emotionally checked out in a certain way since I just, this Peter felt kind of dumb and shallow to me, and him giving up the power of Iron Man to this guy he just met a couple days ago, like, like I could understand a kid under duress doing that and not thinking straight, but then if you're going to go there, And you're going to act like, well, listen, man, he just lost Tony Stark. He's been traumatized. Maybe he's dealing with some PTSD from his experience. And he's behaving erratically. Like, you know, if you want to make the case that he's gone through some stuff, then show me some of that. Show me a Peter who's dealing with this stuff and is behaving incredibly erratically to the point where it's like irresponsible. When he gave Mysterio, when he gave this guy the glasses, the Tony Stark glasses, and basically, you know, endowed him with being the new hero to save the world, it just felt like he made such a huge decision so trivially. And it really just, I don't know, it's, to me, Peter Parker took a few steps backward in this movie. And it, it wasn't because, it wasn't earned. It wasn't like they showed us his struggle, and that's why he's not be, you know, being up to snuff. As far as we know, he's just the same Peter Parker who's experienced all of these unbelievable things, but now he's just decided to be a little more short-sighted with all of his decision-making and a hell of a lot more immature. It just, you know, and, and honestly, when I saw that uh, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly had nothing to do with this, uh, to me, it felt like, oh, that's why. Because, yes, I know that they were only, um, you know, they, they were two of several writers on Homecoming. But after a few years of, after, actually, I shouldn't say a few years, but after watching plenty of their work together, you know, I, I'm pretty familiar with their work. 
And I feel like, maybe this is just me being a fanboy, by the way, but I felt like I could tell their hand was missing from this. This didn't have some of like the real stakes that I know that they like to bring into things because they like making things funny, but they also like it when like at the drop of a dime, things can get pretty dark. If you look at Game Night, for example, or if you look at Horrible Bosses, for example, you know, they know how to bring the levity, but all of a sudden things get real dark, real serious, real fast. And none of that was present here. And that's why when I realized at the end, I didn't know that going into this. When I when the credits rolled and I didn't see their names, I'm like, oh, somebody else wrote this movie. I could feel it. I could see it. This is not the same voice as the first <clears throat> as the first you know as Spider-Man: Homecoming, and this is not the voice of people who've written him through two Avengers movies, actually three if you count Civil War. You know, it just it it didn't feel like Marcus and McFeely either. It was it just you I could just tell, and I didn't actually intend to spend 10 minutes trashing Spider-Man Far From Home today. But, you know, that's what happens when I don't do a show for a few months. You know, I, I'm a little backed up here. And Far From Home really just, I, you know, again, it, just to wrap up on, on like that third act, like, okay, great, you know, Mysterio and all of the, the little droid things. Like, to me, it didn't feel, I wasn't worried. It just, to me, it felt like a bunch of silliness and holograms. And I knew Spider-Man was going to save the day. And I, you know, I just, I knew they weren't going to kill any of his other people after he just lost Tony Stark. There's no chance that Hap or MJ or his best friend or anyone else is in any real danger. And I guess just by that point, I just wasn't invested anymore. So yes, the third act was visually stunning, but to me, it was also a little overlong. And I saw it coming right away, that thing when... He says, execute them all or whatever. You know, it's like I knew like, oh, okay, that was a ham-fisted way to create a moment later. I just, yeah, I just, I I, I guess just to, to suffice it to say, Far From Home didn't do much for me. And therefore, if that's where Marvel Studios, if that's where their best thinking was taking Spider-Man after Endgame, maybe some new creative blood at the, you know, behind the scenes wouldn't hurt. Maybe, you know, maybe this is actually pretty cool that we're going to get to see the very gifted actor Tom Holland and the very gifted actor Tom Hardy in a Spider-Man Venom movie with Woody Harrelson as Carnage. Like, you know what, guys? Maybe there's a lot to be excited for here. I know on the surface, it's like, wait a minute, you know, we finally... Got Spider-Man home. He finally came home to Marvel. He made him an Avenger. All this stuff. I know that on the surface, like, like even me, me, my gut reaction was, oh no. But now that I've had like a week to think on it, I'm like, you know what? I'm I'm excited to see where they go here. Especially if like they've still kind of got Phil Lord and Chris Miller kind of mixed in there at the Sony Brain Trust. Because I loved what they did with Into the Spider-Verse. So if you imagine, if Sony can bring that level of creativity and open-minded imagination like Into the Spider-Verse was into the live-action Spider-Man realm with actors of the caliber of Holland, Hardy, Jared Leto, um, Woody Harrelson. I mean, they're lining up some serious talent. And... Listen, I, 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 I'm ready to be a believer 
of Spider-Man under the Sony umbrella again, you know? But, uh, you know, I just... I, <laughs> I wanted to read a couple more quotes from the latest developments, though, before we move on from this subject. Um, because I just, I find this whole thing so fascinating. So the Sony CEO also said, Spider-Man was fine before the event movie, which I guess that's his pseudonym for the MCU films that he's did, that he's just done. But he said, Spider-Man was fine before the event movies, did better with the event movies, and now that we have our own universe, he will play off the other characters as well. I think we're pretty capable of doing what we have to do here. Now, you know what? Had that been Avi Arad saying that, I'd be terrified. <laughs> but I don't know this uh, Vince Acara person from A Hole in the Wall, and I'm, I, I'm willing to give them a vote of confidence. Um, and apparently, you know, they did try to keep the, according to them, you know, on their public front is that they tried really hard to get the kind of keep Kevin Feige in the in the fray, but ultimately just it, it, the they're framing it like it was Marvel that wanted just a much bigger cut moving forward. Um, yeah, whatever. I don't know if I buy that. <laughs> Tom Holland has chimed in about the whole thing. He said, I'm not shy about expressing how incredible the last five years have been with Marvel. I've truly had the time of my life, and in so many respects, they have made my dreams come true as an actor. Sony has also been really good to me, and the, and the global success of Spider-Man Far From Home is a real testament to their support, skill, and commitment. The legacy and future of Spidey rests in Sony's safe hands. I really am nothing but grateful, and I've made friends for life along the way. Now, this is one of those cases where, like, well, what do you expect him to say? You know what I mean? He's he's not going to suddenly say, my new boss sucks. I wish I had my old boss. Um, but, you know, he, he's playing the game. He's saying what he's got to say. And you know what? I'm trying to be an optimist on this. You know, there are some interesting bits of talent involved in what they're putting together there in the Sony Universe of Marvel characters. And if they if they can get Lord and Miller to keep kind of bringing that into the Spider Verse goodness into the mix, I you know I can't wait to see what Tom Holland does, you know as the center of his own universe over on Sony now. I, I'm, I'm I'm in for that. I'm in for that. Something else I'm in for that everybody's talking about right now is Joker. You know the buzz about the film is almost, is thankfully way louder than the backlash against it. But let's talk about both, all right? Let's start with the buzz. Let's start with the good. The film is apparently phenomenal. A lot of people, you know, it's it, it, they screened it at a festival. Most of the people who've seen it say it's, it's you know, an unbelievable artistic achievement that's going to be surprising people. Joaquin Phoenix should be nominated for an Academy Award, this, this, and that. So the buzz is that, you know, um, what's his name? Todd Phillips has given us a very extremely memorable, extremely powerful, and perhaps very provocative Joker film. But on the flip side, there's also a backlash where people are concerned with with this potentially glorifying uh, homicidal killers and trying to get you to sympathize too much with killers. And you got to understand, we're living at a time where 
you know, there's mass shootings and there's all this, you know, the, the, there's horrors that occur on the news where all of the glory, or not all the glory, but all of the headlines, all of the focus goes to the killer and their manifesto and what terrorist organization were they working on behalf and all that sort of stuff. So there's this reaction right now where people are like, we don't want to glorify killers. We want to be celebrating survivors. We should be looking for how do we avoid these things and so on and so on. And I understand that. And, and that's, that's an un, that, that is an unbelievably valid point that we should not be you know, glorifying killers and serial killers. You know, our whole fascination with serial killers, you know, all the Charles Manson material that's out there nowadays. And we're going to get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in a sec. Um, but, you know, there is, there is this thing, you know, our society, our popular culture seems rather uh, obsessed with killers. And in our news media, you know, the killers often get the lion's share of the attention. So I understand, in that sense, a film like Joker seems like a step in the wrong direction. It seems like, well, how can we you know, make a movie about an iconic character that people already have an affinity for? They know he's a villain, but Joker's always been viewed as one of those villains you love to hate because he's so charismatic and interesting. And through every portrayal of him, people always inevitably fall in love with the Joker. Unless you're Jared Leto's Joker, then, you know, then there's people like me who are dying to see more. And there's, you know, the rest of the world who are like, you know, would never want to see him as Joker again. But by and large, the Joker is a character that people love, that people feel like, you know, not a kinship for, but they feel like, oh, I, I want to see a Joker movie. And so it seems kind of dangerous to make a film that puts you into the mind of a killer, of someone as, you know, potentially as sadistic and, 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 and you know, just vile as a character, as, you know, as Joker. Um, but here's the thing. Maybe we need this movie. Maybe there's a conversation that has to be had. Maybe Todd Phillips and the script writers on this and Joaquin Phoenix knew that this was going to ruffle a lot of feathers and get under the skin of many. And they knew that they wanted to deliver a message. And how do you deliver a message nowadays? You can't get a big movie with a big message made. So you make it through a DC character. You know, I'm sure they had a concept for this movie that almost had nothing to do with the Joker, but it's a story they felt needed to be told. You know, this story of this character, Arthur Fleck, they probably wanted to tell a story about a guy like this. You know, the, I think back to the 90s, there was that, that movie with Michael Douglas, Falling Down. Sometimes you got to make a movie about a guy going through the darkest of times and going off the deep end. And maybe they wanted to do a falling down type movie, but for our current generation, for our current, you know, for, for our you know, just with something to say about where we are today in society. I know the film is set in the 80s, but what the message itself, I imagine, is quite relevant to what's going on in society today, feeling disconnected from everyone, being told that, you know, it just, I, I could see them wanting to tell a very human, very dark, very layered story, but knowing 
we'll only get so much money to do this. We'll be able to make like a little indie film that'll get a you know a small cult following, or you know that 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 hardcore film buffs will know and tell their friends to watch, but that no one's actually going to see, or we use it as a Joker origin movie. You know what I mean? You could almost see the creative leap. Or even if they knew it was going to be Joker from the outset, they knew that they wanted to tell a story, though, that had nothing to do with the Joker. That's why he's come out in interviews, uh, Todd Phillips has, about not reading the, you know, not basing this on any books and not being interested in any previous versions of the character. He just wanted to tell this story. And that tells me that this story is bigger than the Joker. This story is why this movie got made. Joker is just the way he can sell it to you. Joker is just the way he can get a major studio to put it out in front of the world with the most eyes possible. So I understand that we're worried about a film that perhaps glorifies, I don't know if glorify is a term. I haven't seen the film. But a lot, of, you know, a lot of what I see in the conversations about the film is they feel like it works too hard to put you into his mind, to almost make him sympathetic in a way, to the point where it's like, you know, by the end, you almost feel like you're the sad clown who can go out and, you know, commit some atrocities. They feel like this film could be a dog whistle to other loners and outsiders. But maybe this conversation is about that. Maybe this film is hoping to create a conversation with, we need to look at how we treat the people who live on the fringes. We need to look at mental illness. We need to look at how we treat people who don't fit into certain preconceived boxes. Because we end up in you. We you can inadvertently end up creating a monster, when all this person ever needed, perhaps, was just love and guidance and patience. And we we live in an in a society nowadays where love and guidance and patience is becoming kind of a you know a, a dwindling commodity, so to speak. So yes, I understand that there is some concern around the Joker. But from where I'm sitting and based on the things I've heard about this movie and the types of issues it seems to be trying to tackle, hopefully not in a way that's too preachy or didactic, based on all of those things, I think this is a film that we perhaps really need. It's a provocative film in the best way. Maybe, hopefully, but you know, it creates some sort of conversation or maybe it's just a moment in time. You think about like Martin Scorsese's early films, which is what, you know, it looks like Phillips was looking for here. You know, his his seminal works in the 70s, those were moments in time. They they captured the culture of the time perfectly. You know, you look at Dog Day Afternoon, you look at Taxi Driver. I mean, he and then even in the 80s, you know, King Comedy, like he's these films were snapshots of periods in time and they had something to say and there was something almost cultural about them. And maybe that's, you know, he's swinging for the fences with this. Maybe this is Phillips trying to pull a Scorsese to make a big film that a lot of people are going to see that's going to make you walk away, like, you know, disturbed in a way and make you... Think about things. It's going to arrest you in some way in your mind. 
And even if it doesn't make you want to go and be a kinder person to you know your 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 neighbor down the hall who you think might become a serial killer one day, even if that part doesn't happen, it looks like it's a film that you're gonna remember, and you're gonna understand why it got made and why it got made now. I have a feeling that's the way that's gonna go. Um, but yes, so like I said, you know, I was talking about we're going to get into serial killers. Right? We're going to get into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because uh, Charles Manson's involved. And listen, I want to talk about this film for just a sec because I was asked on Twitter. Uh, Paulie, uh, I believe it was Paulie, wanted to ask. Uh, he wanted to know what my thoughts were. And in short, I'm a big Tarantino fan. I, I've loved almost everything he's done. And to me, he's one of those few directors who, like, his films are an event film for me. Like, before I know what the premise is, before I know who's in it, when it's announced that there's going to be, that a new Tarantino movie is on the way, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see it. Like, you know, it's, I'm a Tarantino guy. And this film, I was very excited for. I, I, I made sure to clear my schedule in the middle of a very hectic part of my summer. You know, it, just, you know, since we've last spoken, like there was a period there where I was in Providence, Rhode Island for a few days, then we came home, then we flew to Disney World for a week, then we came home, then we went tent camping for a full week out, you know, up north with no internet and no cell service, getting stormed on under a tent. It just nuts. But, um, you know, I had a very adventurous summer. But in the middle of all that, I made sure to carve out three hours to go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at one of my lo at a local theater, and I went with one of my one of my very best friends, and I got to tell you, the film, I was so with it, I was incredibly with it, like just buying it hook, line, and singer halfway through, three quarters of the way through. And then, as into it as I had been, I was out of it. And I don't want to spoil anything, but, you know, the film kind of dances around a very notorious, very famous true crime story, which I found interesting, by the way, because my friend didn't even realize it. Colin had no idea. He didn't know about Sharon Tate. He didn't know about Charles Manson. He didn't know about any of that. He thought this film was just a complete work of fiction that worked in some famous period you know, characters like Bruce Lee and that sort of thing. But he had no idea that it was based on a true story. So I, me, as a true crime buff, I'm in my glory, by the way, because there's a few things I love, okay? I love true crime. I love Tarantino, as I've already professed. And I love period pieces. So here, through most of this film, I feel like I'm watching Tarantino do a riff on true crime, where yes, there's the true story of Sharon Tate, and you see the foreshadowing of what's going on with her. But T Tarantino, in his own you know, Tarantino-y way, had weaved a larger-than-life story around hers using Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters. And I was very intrigued to see, oh, all right, so how is this all going to come together? How is this going to coalesce? Or, you know, what is it that Tarantino is trying to do with this fictitious storyline that's going to add extra depth 
or intrigue or perhaps, you know, ask a question or shine a spotlight on a glaring thing about the Sharon Tate case. And lo and behold, he went with a fictitious ending. You know, uh, he, he, I don't, I don't want to spoil anything, but the, it, it doesn't play out the way it did in real life in any way, shape or form. And I just, I don't know, to me that, that pulled the rug out from under me. And maybe, you know, it's, I might owe the film a second viewing. Maybe now knowing where he's going with it, I, I won't be as let down by, by what he ultimately did. You know what I mean? So I do feel like, you know, as a Tarantino buff, I owe it a second viewing at, at the very least. But, yeah, I, I, I was loving it, loving it, loving it so much. I thought the acting was great. The dialogue was great. The atmosphere, the way it, it, it just, I thought I was in the middle of watching a masterwork. And I was so excited to get to talk about this movie afterward. And then I kind of saw the creative liberties he took. And I just fell silent. And I'm like, oh, I don't know anymore. You know, this is like... 95% a movie that I adore and it's, you know, 5% a film that I'm like, I don't know what we're trying to do here. What's the point we're trying to make? What's the question we're trying to ask? What was all this for? What do we spend all this time getting to know these fictitious characters for if it wasn't to make the real thing matter more in a way? I don't know. It just, that, that that's kind of my... Um, once upon a time in Mexico, kind of re in Mexico. <laughs> Once upon a time in Hollywood, sort of a recap. And if I w if I had to, like grade it or anything like that, it's I mean it's so hard, because that ending really threw me for a loop. You know I I'm going to withhold from giving it a letter grade. Just suffice it to say, I absolutely loved it until I didn't anymore. So that's that, 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 that's kind of like the best thing that I could do to describe uh, my feelings on Tarantino's latest. Um, and the last thing I want to talk about today before uh, just kind of checking in with you a little bit is Robert Pattinson has finally spoken a little bit about being Batman. And, you know, he's got a video and he talks, you know, there's a video interview and he talks about putting on the costume for the first time. And, you know, kind of like, I mean, we've heard a lot of this before about what it's like when you have all these people like, you know, squeezing your butt into really tight fabric. It's hard to feel heroic when you have like a team of 30 people, you know, uh, putting a costume on you. But, you know, aside from that, you know, th th there were some other interesting little nuggets and... You know, the, the one that I, I, I really want to focus on here is... Uh, actually, I'll, I'll read all of them, and then we'll circle back. So, on his name being leaked as the new Batman... By the way, I'm reading this off of BatmanOnFilm.com. Uh, you know, authoritative, definitive, daggone original. Uh, Batman on Film, you know, they, they transcribed uh, part of an interview. And here's what he had to say on his name being leaked as the new Batman... When that thing leaked, I was fucking furious. Everyone was so upset. Everyone was panicking from my team. I sort of thought that had blown up the whole thing. On the ridiculous backlash, quote unquote, 
over his Batman casting. To be honest, it was less vitriolic than I was expecting. It's much more fun when you're an underdog. There's no expectation of you. I like that. He says uh, he had been interested in playing Batman for a while. He said, I'd had Batman in my mind for a while. It's such an absurd thing to say. I sort of had an idea to do it, and I'd been prodding Matt. He didn't accept any prods. I kept asking to meet him. Um, you know, I, I think that's really cool, by the way. I think it's really cool when an actor really wants a role, you know. I, to kind of circle back to Tom Holland, you know, Tom Holland loves being Spider-Man, and that's part of the joy of watching him on screen. It's part of the joy of seeing him at the red carpet premieres and in interviews. You can feel his joy. His joy is palpable, that he gets to play this iconic hero that he grew up, you know, loving. And to hear that Robert Pattinson was basically banging down the door for Matt Reeves to try to, you know, get met, you know, to, to see him for this role, I think that's really cool. And it says something to his dedication to wanting it. You know, it, it, it means, you know, it's not like Matt Reeves or the studio was like, we want to find some some guy and we, we want to make them the it boy and we're going to do this or we think Robert Pattinson is due for a push again. Like, it doesn't sound like there was any sort of corporate anything about this. This was Pattinson, the actor, wanting to do it and pursuing Matt Reeves and Matt Reeves not even necessarily just saying, okay, you know, it, it, the, way he, the way he describes it, you know, he didn't accept any prods. He kept asking to meet him. So... You know, I, I just, I, I enjoy that sort of stuff. Um, but here's what I don't enjoy. And I'm going to circle back. And this is where we're going to talk about a little bit of why I needed some time away. Okay? So I'm going to bring you back to that first quote where Mr. Pattinson says, When that thing leaked, I was fucking furious. Everyone was so upset. Everyone was panicking from my team. I sort of thought that had blown up the whole thing. And, uh, I mean, it's funny because I've spent the last couple of months trying to figure out a way to explain to you why I fell out of all this stuff, why I suddenly just needed to step away and why my priorities kind of shifted to where, like, I had to make some decisions about what I'm willing to do in my free time and what I'm not. And what I'm not willing to do anymore is to even attempt to create panic in the, in the lives of the artists and performers and people I respect so much who create the things that I love so much, and that is movies. I never, and I've said this before, but now like th th this is, this is kind of like my official declaration, but I never want to be a thorn in the side of a creator or an artist or any of the people who create these films, because I love all these movies. Even Spider-Man Far From Home, I loved, not because it was a great movie, because it wasn't, but because I love movies. I'm a, I'm a film nut. I'm a film, I, I love this art form. I love getting to go into the theater, let the lights dim, have my overly buttered salted popcorn at the ready and my cold Coke Zero. Yes, Coke Zero, I know, sue me. I don't drive a Prius though, but I do drink Coke Zero. Um, you know, I love this stuff so much. 
that I never want to cause any kind of unrest. And I don't want to be part of an industry. Because by, by the way, I'm not even being so egotistical as to say that I have. I mean, I've had plenty of scoops get confirmed. I just don't know how the people on their end reacted. But in general, I don't even want to contribute to a culture that does that. To me, the scoop culture has sort of lost its way across the board. Whether it's little sites like my own, like Revenge of the Fans, or whether it's even big sites like Variety, which is the one that almost blew up Robert Pattinson's Batman deal. That was Variety, remember that? That was Justin Kroll who did that first, and apparently he had jumped the gun, remember? There were still screen tests, it, it, it took two weeks, and here he is basically confirming that things were not set when Variety did that. That was a leak and it almost blew up the whole thing. And it's like scoop culture to me, it's about pissing on someone else's party. You know, right there, a filmmaker and his team are lovingly putting together a dream project. They're getting all their ducks in a row. And while they're there doing this fun work of creating this pe this piece of pop art that people around the world will hopefully love and it'll be a piece of pop art that hopefully endures at a time where there's lots of disposable entertainment. They're hopefully striving to make a film that will be remembered, that will be loved, that will, that, that will you know, uh, justify its existence. There, there's a lot of thought that's going into this. And to me, the blogosphere, to me, scoop culture, it attempts to just spoil all the surprises because there's no like th th there's no ethics. Some sites blow plot details. Some sites reveal secret castings that maybe that would have been a neat surprise if no one knew about it. But now you told everyone, you know, some sites just jump the gun. They get so excited. They want to listen. I did it. And apparently so did Justin Kroll. You know, I did it when I thought I had the Army Hammer Batman scoop. Justin Kroll did it when he thought he had the Robert Pattinson scoop. Thankfully for him, the Robert Pattinson thing ended up working out and they did finalize the deal and it did become true. But that does not change the fact that it was not true when Kroll reported it. So, scoop culture to me, it just it undermines this industry and it undermines even just enjoyment of movies. I feel like one of the reasons that the online hive gets so vitriolic and so toxic and so petty and so entitled is because we're given way too much information. Information that really doesn't matter. We're hearing about you know, we're hearing about the screen tests. We're hearing about when the casting breakdowns go out. We're hearing who the supposed shortlist, who the studio wants for a screen test. We're hearing um, what cities might get filmed in. We're hearing, like, I mean, we keep hearing all of this stuff that at the end of the day doesn't increase your enjoyment of the movie. Yeah, okay, it just gives you a little more information, but now by the time you sit there and watch it, you've already labored for it. 
the movie's already kind of at a disadvantage because you've already been for the last, you know, whatever it is, year, year and a half, been obsessing about this movie, consuming every scrap and morsel you can about it. So now the film like has to pay off on all of those hopes. It has to pay off. Or if you had fears or concerns, you know, now you're walking in apprehensive because maybe one of the 19 things you heard about the film that you didn't really need to hear anyway worried you. So now you're walking in with your guard up and you're not just experiencing it with the, with the open heart and the joy of just an audience member in the audience about to get taken away in a story. You know, I spoke about that a few episodes ago, the, being, the importance of being all in, the dream state, getting lost in the world of the story. And I feel like what all of these sites do, and, and, you know, and, and not maliciously, but what all of these sites, you know, the comicbook.coms, all of these, you know, the, the geek sites that generate all the headlines and all of the conversation pieces that Twitter and Reddit and everyone obsesses about, it just, I don't know who it helps. It helps those sites get clicks, but it, does it help the audience really? It definitely doesn't help the industry or the people making the films to feel like, well, now I have to be incredibly careful about everything I say or do because if I say or do the wrong thing or if I mention five ideas about what I want to do with my Superman movie and one of them is not the most popular take, so somebody overhears that and leaks that to the internet, and now the entire internet is up in arms about a Superman movie that that was just one of five ideas I had. You're like, that kind of stuff happens. So to me, I find it thankless. And the only people who really win in the blogosphere are the blog sites themselves by getting you to click on and create a culture where now you want to know all of this meaningless minutiae Oh, now they're doing their pickup shots. Oh, now second unit is doing this. Oh, you know, the casting breakdown says they're looking for a such and such type. Okay, who cares if they're looking for a such and such type? Just let me know when it's officially cast who it is. I don't need to know who one of ten people might end up in a role, you know? So, and mind you, if, if that matters to you, you still have places to get that information. But Revenge of the Fans will not be, you know, for the time being, I've closed down the news department because by my standards, there's just not a lot of real news. And the real news gets covered by the top, like, Deadline and The Hollywood Reporter. That's, like, where real news comes from and variety, even though, even though Justin Kroll kind of, you know, made created a situation here. But, you know, I, I leave it to the trades to give me my news. And then... If I hear something along the way that I want to share with you, I'll talk about it here on the show and I'll, I might fire up like a revenge report on the website as I wrote about last week in the piece, uh, Revenge of the Fans is Evolving. I explained I may do revenge reports where I kind of give my take on the news, kind of recap some of the big stories out there and kind of like, you know, gives my two cents or maybe... You know, if there are rumors going around that I, I just feel the need to chime in on, of course, I'll do that. But what you're never going to see from me again is a headline that says exclusive. 
and you're never going to see a news item that tries to spoil something for you before it was ready to be announced. Because I'm just not interested in that. So if I hear any cool, like, bochinche, a little word on the street, if I hear something from a colleague that I just think is cool, you know, to, to, to discuss, I'm going to very clearly label it rumor and innuendo to, con- you know, to, uh, to kind of borrow a page from Conrad Thompson and his amazing wrestling podcasts. Um, I'm just going to file anything I hear that's not from Variety, Deadline, or The Hollywood Reporter as rumor and innuendo. Even if I think it's really credible, I'm just going to call it a rumor and I'm just going to have fun discussing it with you and playing around with the ideas of what this could mean because a lot of you have said that to you is what's fun about this show. And honestly, that's important for me to hear because I started kind of like forgetting what this show was or what it was for or what it was about. You know, I I wasn't sure who my target audience was or if I should even have a target audience. You know, I didn't in the beginning. In the beginning, it was just me and a mic and, you know, just talking about what's going on in geekdom and giving my two cents and that's it. And then, you know, it grew from there. But I never tried to like, you know, zero in on one particular type of fan. But what was going on with the fanboy over the course of the last year and a half was that so many of you bombard me with requests for scoop information on Twitter that I started feeling like, oh, I guess this show should become more of like a scoop show. So I guess I need to make that a priority, you know? And for a while there, I was doing everything I could to try to come up with like insider information for you, you know? I was talking to anyone I knew who was close to any of the projects we were interested in so I could have some, you know, exclusive information for you, you know? And I always vetted as best as I could and I always, you know... um, I, you know, I always treated it with importance. I didn't treat it trivially. On the contrary, I, it suddenly, it became this like almost suffocating responsibility to like, okay, I, I have a show coming up later on in the week and I got to make sure to have something newsworthy to talk about. At least that's how it felt to me. Because so many of you seem to want to you know, get news or get like, oh, what did you hear about this? Or, you know, like, I just, I lost my way with this. And that's why it's been nice to hear from a bunch of us saying, listen, we never really even cared necessarily about the news and scoop stuff anyway. We just like, you know, hearing you talk about this stuff. You know, it's fun to talk about the possibilities. That that's the fun in this. It's not about trying to like hold your feet to the fire with, well, you reported this on May 17th and it didn't go exactly the way you said. You know, it seems like a lot of you have a very open mind and enjoy the show for just... You know, it's it's me being me, me being honest, me giving you my 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 very sincere two cents, my raw passionate truth on all of these topics that mean uh, a lot to you and to me. So um, that's what this show is again, and that's what it will continue to be. And honestly, this episode, for for what it's worth, it's been all one take. I haven't broken yet. We are 58 minutes into this recording, or 58.40 into this particular recording, and I haven't stopped because I've had a lot to tell you guys, and I really have missed you. I do love this stuff, and what I want you to know, though, I didn't mean to get all schmaltzy there. That just happens sometimes. Um, 
what I was trying to say. And by the way, I don't even have notes in front of me. That's how just I'm backed up on talking to you about stuff right now. Um, so yes, what I'm okay. This episode was kind of off the cuff. It was very, very kind of casual, very kind of open format. I haven't, you know, there's no editing. This is literally just me talking for an hour. And th that was kind of by design. Episode 99, this, my return show. This is more of a check-in. This is more of, hey guys, I'm still here. And, you know, if, if you want to keep talking to me, uh, the show is back. And I hope that you'll let me back into your earbuds again. Um, but I'm saving some of my uh, extra special sauce for next week. Because next week is the Fanboy episode 100. And that is quite a milestone. And at a time now where things are becoming so clear to me as for what I want to do with this, what I want to do with my life, what I want to do with my free time, now that it's not going to be dedicated to finding and editing and publishing quote-unquote news stories for an industry that I feel I'm harming in a way. Now that I've gotten that off my back. Um, I'm going to focus on making the fanboy the best show it can be. And the fanboy 100 will hopefully be step one in a big sort of revamp of the fanboy podcast. Uh, I'm going to definitely be bringing back the news segment that used to be here from the original show, which actually was a carryover from my first show, the uh, Lost Fanboys podcast that I named over at Latino Review back when I was there. Um, yeah, I'm going to be bringing back the news. I'm going to be working a little more. I, you know what? I'll, I'll keep, I will keep the rest of my uh, announcing or whatever for next week. But just know, next week's show will be a little more, uh, it's not going to be so off the cuff. That's all I'm going to say. Episode 100 should be a pretty special one. I've got ideas. As for my other show, as for the Revengers podcast... Um, it is not going to continue in its current form, the weekly episodic format. Uh, we're not doing that anymore. Uh, Brett and Vanessa and I still have some conversations to have, uh, but it will continue on in one way, shape or form. And right now I'm thinking it's going to be like a monthly thing, almost like a monthly special. In my mind, I almost think of it like the wrestling model where there's four weekly shows and then the big you know, show at the end of the year, the pay-per-view uh, at the end of the month. So what I'm thinking is a format that's with, you know, four weeks of the fanboy and then a big Revengers that gets together the key players who need to talk about a particular major topic. And uh, more about more on all that will be revealed once, once my cohorts and I figure out exactly how we want to do this for you. But either way, the fanboy is back online I will hear from you. Uh, you'll hear from me again next week for episode 100. I hope you guys had an amazing summer. I hope you enjoyed this last hour and three minutes of me uh, just talking to you for a little while. It's been uh, it's been real. So everyone, until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios.